Let's pray. Lord, we trust you. We thank you for your word. Um, We're desperate for Jesus, not only to be exalted in our church and glorified in our lives, but we're just excited for Jesus, like to meet him, to see him, to honor him, to glorify him, to be like him. We long for Christ. And if we don't long for Christ in any ways in which we don't long for Christ, I pray that you would create in us a desire that comes through communing with you. So I ask your spirit to lead now, to speak now as your word is proclaimed. And we trust that you will do sanctifying work in our hearts and minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing that we need to keep in mind when we're studying 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Titus is that this is a personal letter. So most of the letters in the New Testament are written by an author to a group of people or to a church in a specific location. Uh, The letter to the Galatians is written to the several churches in the province of Galatia. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians is to the church in Ephesus, and so on and so forth. Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. So it's written by Paul to churches, and those letters were to be read by the entire church. They were essentially what they preached and studied and taught in these house churches that were established early in the church life. And those letters were meant to be circulated as well. So they would circulate among the the, the local churches, and they would spread beyond local churches into further areas. Uh, So Paul's letter to one church would be eventually read in all the churches, which we now see is happening today. We're nowhere near Ephesus. (laughs) We're thousands of miles away from Ephesus, and yet we're still reading the Ephesian letter or Paul's letter to Timothy. But what's different about these, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, is that Paul's writing them to individual people, Um, This isn't the only time it happens in Scripture, but uh, we need to take that into consideration so that we can understand the context. We need to understand this is a personal letter from one man to another man, and those men have specific roles, and that enlightens our understanding of the meaning of the text so we can genuinely understand what what do these texts mean. And that's important because Paul is going to instruct Timothy how Timothy personally, in his specific role of elder slash pastor of the church in Ephesus, on how to deal not only with the body and not only with false teachers, but on how to deal with false teachers who are elders in the church. So, in today's text, in the next few weeks of text, Paul covers what Timothy is to do with false teachers in the church. And we'll examine that as we go throughout the text and discover what heresies they were teaching and how the church is supposed to deal with them. I'm not going to dive too deep into the heresy itself today because it kind of becomes uh, discovered uh, later in, the, in other texts, so we'll cover those in the next few weeks. But I will give you an idea of what's going on. So uh, again, like I said, verse 3 is kind of like a foundational verse, kind of a, a, a like a... A brief summary verse of what Paul kind of dives into later as he gets through verses 4 through 11. And, and then these issues that arise in chapter 1, which is essentially just false teaching. Okay, That's really what it's about and how to deal with false teachers. Uh, Paul's going to address this more later. So he'll talk about, he'll, he'll kind of walk away from the false teaching idea for a little bit throughout the letter and he'll come back and revisit it and you'll see kind of see how all these ideas he brings up early in the letter kind of formulate into how the church should function and what Timothy should do and so this is a really awesome letter for the church because like when we read other letters in the New Testament there's a lot of instruction there's a lot of doctrine and a lot of instruction so I'm doing a bible study uh, some discipleship with uh, some young men and we do it once a week, and we sit in my office, and we're doing Ephesians right now. And I was explaining to them that when you look at the letter to the Ephesians, Paul, had, there's six chapters. Now, keep in mind, Paul, the original authors don't put chapters and verses or subtitles in the original manuscripts, right? They didn't write these. So we have added chapters and verse numbers and little subtitles before section breaks in the text. So all that's... Man-made, not God-made. And so 
We've got six chapters, though, in Ephesians. The first three chapters are strictly doctrine. And I walked through Ephesians 1 with these boys on uh, Tuesday, I think it was. And I said, let's just go through the whole chapter 1. And let's discover what we do in chapter 1 and what God does. And as we went through chapter 1, it was like, what are we doing here? Nothing. What are we doing here? Nothing. And what is God doing here? Everything. Chapter 2, same thing. Chapter 3, same thing. It's just very, it's what God does, the doctrine, certain, you know, some very important doctrines are in those first three chapters. And, and then you get to chapter 4, and it just totally shifts. And it goes from taking all that doctrine he taught and then turning it into like practical Christian Christ-honoring living. And it's really cool the way Paul writes these letters that he just takes. He's like, you got to understand these doctrines before you understand how to live it. And that's what happens here in 1 Timothy is Paul does give Timothy instruction on what to do. So there is practical implications that Timothy has to deal with and Paul addresses rather quickly. But they're more foundational, doctrinally foundational is what he's establishing. And then later in the letter, he puts all these foundational doctrinal elements together to kind of instruct Timothy, like, this is how you deal with this. This is what you do here. And so we'll see that unfold as we walk through the letter, but it's really cool when you kind of step back from the text and just look at it as a whole, and you've got this doctrine, it's like, oh, so the letter's about that. Nope, it's actually about this as well. Oh, okay, and then about this as well, and this as well, and he kind of just drops some doctrinal pieces in for us so we get a foundational understanding of who God is and what he expects and what we're to believe, and then he turns that into, and this is how you practice it. So to be able to step back from the letter and see it as a whole that way is very helpful as we start deep in the weeds in verse 3. And Paul says to Timothy, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So this sentence is just the start of a larger run-on explanation of the problems that exist in Ephesus uh, regarding the teaching that is going on there, the problems with church leadership, and the problems with people in the church opposing church leadership. And we know this because Paul says that some in Ephesus, we find this later in chapter 1, he says that, that some in Ephesus are rejecting pastoral authority. And Paul names them specifically in verse 20. He says, Hymenaeus and Alexander, because he says in uh, verse 19, by rejecting this, well, what's this? It's Timothy's role, which we find in verse 18. And by rejecting Timothy's authority, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And man, do I want to talk about that little phrase. He handed them over to Satan? That's pretty extreme. Um, I'm not going to talk about that because we're going to get to verse 20 eventually. Um, but you can see how Paul expects Timothy to deal with opposition, right? And so these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are likely elders in the church. And we get that reality from the fact that Paul has to show up himself and deal with these men himself. He doesn't leave it to Timothy. Paul's like, I got this. Before I leave you with the rest of the guys to deal with, Timothy, I'm going to take care of these two, which means there were probably two guys, if named specifically by name, who were causing the biggest stink in Ephesus. And they probably had a role of elder or some sort of church leadership role. They were at least trusted and well-known teachers that they had a voice that was influencing people uh, to their demise. And so now Paul is charging Timothy. And what does Paul charge Timothy with? To remain at Ephesus that you may also charge. So Paul charges Timothy to charge the church and to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy receives his pastoral authority from Paul to deal with sin in the church and to preserve the purity of the gospel in the face of false teachers. And these false teachers are skewing the gospel with false elements, which were mostly pieces of Judaism that they mixed into the gospel. So the, the real heresy going on here in the church is what we call 
syncretism, and I'll talk about that in a second, but a mixture of different belief systems put together, and the reality is, is if you add anything to the gospel, or you take anything out of the gospel, it becomes a false gospel, regardless of how much truth it contains. It doesn't matter. I mean, false teachers, heretics who preach today or any day in the past or will any day in the future, if you listen to them, there's a lot of things they say that are true. I mean, you could have 95% truth from the pulpit with 5% genuinely deceptive heresy and that gospel, all of it is false. The whole gospel is ruined. So we need to be careful, and this is the point of what Paul's really getting to in these first Verses, uh, verses 3 through 11 is Timothy's charge specifically to deal with certain persons. But why deal with certain persons? Because Timothy's charge ultimately is to preserve the purity of the gospel or to preserve the purity of sound doctrine. So you can imagine the difficulty of Timothy's call to stay in Ephesus and deal with the sin in the church. There were elders and church leaders who were teaching their people false elements with elements of true gospel. And then Paul realized the impact that this could have on the church because the church was new and it was just beginning. I mean, we've had churches for 2,000 years. This is like early church. Like this is all new to them. So there's a lot of problems in the early church because... You have people getting saved and then gathering together because they know they're supposed to get together and they love the Lord and they genuinely love Jesus and they get together and they sing and they worship and they give and they take their givings and they just start handing out provisions for anybody who's in need. They're like, oh, this feels so great to be a part of a body, to be, to be in love with Christ and to know Jesus and to know God through Christ and to know this gospel that saves the Messiah is finally here and we get to gather as God's people and worship and sing songs and psalms and spiritual songs and pray and hold each other's hands and lay hands on one another and fast together we get to listen to the word preached and the Old Testament prophecies explained to us by qualified elders and teachers and preachers in the church and now we got these new letters from Paul we get to read these letters and, and learn instructions but before all these letters arrive these people are all already gathering and they don't know what to do they don't know what worship looks like they don't know what the church should be structured or what the functions of the church should be they don't understand all the details they don't have the letter i was born and you were born into a culture that already knew the gospel a lot of you were born into christian homes you you were you were raised with the assumption of Christianity. You knew what church looked like because your parents brought you to church when you were a kid. You don't know any different than what you've seen. And what does that create? Traditions. So we've got traditions that we live by. We just sang a Christmas song. Did you guys catch that? <laughs> Why? Why not? That's my, that's my answer. Why not, right? Why would we not celebrate Jesus at any time? Why do we only celebrate the birth of Jesus around Christmas time? Tradition, because the Bible doesn't command us that that's how it ought to be. So why do we do it? Because of tradition. Does that, I'm okay with that tradition. I'm sure you're okay with that tradition. And I'm okay with traditions, as we should be. And some traditions are very helpful. Some can be harmful. But the problem is when our tradition supersedes God's word, that's when it becomes problematic because Jesus faced that with the Pharisees. They're like, why don't your disciples wash their hands? And Jesus is like, why do you care about traditions when you don't obey the word? It just like Mike drops them right there. And he's like, your traditions are stupid. If they get in the way of the gospel, they're stupid. So... I don't think that singing Christmas songs at Christmas time is a stupid tradition. It's a wonderful tradition that I love, and we all grew up with it, and we love it. And I'm just using that as just another example of like, um, and by the way, I didn't pick that song for this week just to say this. Those are not related. This is just coming to mind now. So uh, <laughs> I hope you're not thinking like, oh, I picked that just so we can make this point. Not at all. But I do just want us to understand that when you come into a church with certain traditions or, or like, or we, we are 
raised in churches with certain traditions. Well, if there's no church with its traditions yet, and then you start joining as a church, then what's your tradition? You don't have anything. So what do you have? Well, you have the Word of God, and that's it. But the New Testament letters aren't all finished yet. The, the, new, the early church doesn't have what we have. doesn't have the complete new covenant right away early on when they get started. So what traditions do people bring in? Well, the church is filled mostly with Jews at this point. So what traditions do they bring in? Jewish traditions. So what, what, what elements of Jewish traditions do they bring in? Their Judaistic beliefs. They're, they have a different gospel in their mind until they get saved in Christ. So now they've got this law that they had to live by their entire life. They're raised in the law. There's no, the idea of church just doesn't even exist in their minds yet. The first time we see the word church mentioned in the Bible is when Jesus is talking about disciplining uh, sinners or people who claim to be believers but are caught, caught in sin. And he says, confront them one-on-one, -on -one, then bring a witness or two with you, and if you still don't win your brother over, bring it to the church. That's the first time we hear the church mentioned. So the early church doesn't have an idea of what the church is. They have an idea of what Judaism is. They're raised going to the synagogue and the temple and worshiping God according to the Old Testament law. They've got Old Testament law traditions. They've got Old, Test Old Testament law traditions that are biblical and Old Testament law traditions that are not necessarily biblical but also may not be necessarily unbiblical. And so they bring all that into the church and then you've got this guy who believes this thing and this guy who believes that thing and this person who believes this way and they might have different traditions or maybe even different understandings of the Old Testament and maybe this guy heard Paul's letter to the Ephesians and this guy heard some of Peter's letter and this, you know, and there's different elements and pieces and that's why the establishment of bringing in elders to lead the church was so important for Timothy that Paul's like, these churches have to start with elders. We need men who are qualified and called by God to step into these roles and lead the churches so that they can preserve the purity of sound doctrine. But even those men themselves are just like everyone else, wrapped up in traditions, got Old Testament law on their mind, that's all they've ever known, and now they hear this new gospel that is really the old gospel because it's the same gospel that's preached in the Old Testament. They just couldn't see it. And now... They have to function like a church, but they don't really know how. And so what happens? All these different people with different perspectives start showing up, and this guy's like, well, I think this, and this guy's like, well, I think that, and this person's like, well, I think this. And they all got these different views and opinions on what the church should look like. And so they start bringing in their traditions, and they start bringing in their doctrinal elements that are not biblical. I'm sure much of it is biblical, but a lot of it also wasn't. And so you've got no clarity, you've got no authority, you've got no... Um, uh, sound doctrine established by authoritative men in the church who are called to establish those doctrines. And what happens is people just start creating their own version of what church should be like. And that happens today. 2,000 years later, that still happens. And we have all of the New Testament finished, completed for us, and available to use to make sure that our church functions in the most biblical way possible but early on they didn't have that and so with all these people coming into the church and gathering together in Ephesus and they've got their Judaistic beliefs that they're bringing in it, it just kind of creates this doctrinal hodgepodge of thinking which certainly is going to influence how people live their lives because if one Jew comes in and says hey I'm an elder at this church and what you guys need to realize is even though Jesus died for your sins you still have to obey the Sabbath because Moses commanded it. And then people are like, oh, oh well, I guess we've got to obey the Sabbath. And then they obey the Sabbath. And they take the Sabbath like, we've got to obey the law still. Which is heresy. <clears throat> there are ten... Uh, when you think of the Ten Commandments, how many of the Ten Commandments are repeated for us to obey in the New Testament? Nine. Nine of the ten are repeated in the New Testament. Which one's not? Does anyone know? Which commandment in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, is not repeated in the New Covenant? Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is the one Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments that is not given to us in the New Testament or in the New Covenant in Christ because in Hebrews 8, 13... 
the author says, the old covenant is now obsolete. The new covenant now reigns. So now we operate by the new covenant. And the new covenant upholds a lot of Old Testament laws and also doesn't uphold a lot of Old Testament laws. And what we find in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, is Paul deals with the law. In fact, the whole book of Galatians, the whole letter to the Galatians is really a great exposition of like how the church should view, perceive, and operate with their, in relationship to the law and the gospel of Christ. And so in chapter 3, and I'm, I'm going to tell you why I'm reading this in a second. In chapter 3, verse 10 of Galatians, Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law, just, just think about that for a second. For all who rely on works of the law. Now, I don't know anyone in this room who I would, could say that about. But it was certainly true in the early church because of what I just explained, that you've got Jews who have Judy, uh, uh, a Jewish theology, doctrine, and Old Testament life. That's all they've ever known, and now they've got this new gospel and Christ and the church, and, and it's like they've got to break out of their old shell, right? So I can, you can understand how the early church would struggle with the law, like transitioning from Jesus has fulfilled the law, and he's fulfilled it for us, so we no longer are bound to the law, but we are now bound to Christ by grace and faith. And so we don't have to live the law unless there's any element of the Old Testament law that is, again, upheld for us in the New Testament. And we wouldn't call that, we wouldn't say we're obeying the law, we would say we're obeying the New Covenant. So we don't have to obey the law. Because once we try to obey the law, we are relying on the law. And this is what Paul says about those who rely on the law. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Okay, if God says, do this and you're cursed, should you do that? <laughs> no. Like, that's just really plain and really obvious, right? Do this and you're under a curse. So let's not do this. Well, what's this? Relying on the law. He goes on and says, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then he, what Paul's really explaining there is when James says that you're guilty of breaking one law, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. So if you want to live by the law, you're under a curse. Not because the law is cursed, but because you can't. You can't live by the law. You won't do it. There isn't an Old Testament Jew who did it right, ever, except for Jesus. And there's no New Testament believer who could live it right. And that's the entire purpose and function of the law. The law exists to show you God has a standard for perfection that you cannot meet. And he spent thousands of years with the Jews saying, live this law. And they're like, we can't. Live this law. We can't. Live this law. We can't. All right, I'll be patient with you as you continue to fail me. Why? So that he could show us how desperate we are as a people for a Savior who can do it for us. What a beautiful gospel that God would endure with patience thousands of years of sin against pe with people who sin against his perfect law. And so the law exists to reveal that we're not capable of perfectly obeying God, of honoring God and pleasing God with our righteousness because we just don't have it. And so that's the function of the law, to serve as, as, as a means to show us that we are sinners and in desperate need for Jesus Christ. So that's the purpose of law, which means if you try to live that law, you're going to fail. That's a guarantee. Other than Christ, no one else has ever done it and done it perfectly. Therefore, to return to the law after receiving grace through Jesus Christ is a total spit in the face to the gospel itself. Jesus, thank you for living the law perfectly on my behalf. I can't do it. You can I will take your righteousness from you. Thank you for your gift of righteousness that I could not earn, and I certainly 
didn't do, but you did perfectly. What grace and what goodness of God to redeem me despite the fact that I cannot obey God perfectly. But you know what, Jesus? I'm going to go try to live that law anyways. And Jesus is like, I, why? That's why I came. That's the reason I'm here. That's what I came to earth for, to do the thing that, so you don't have to because you can't. So I, I bring this up for a reason. There are a lot of people. I, could, I, I know a handful of families that live according to the Old Testament law. They observe the Sabbath religiously. It makes no sense to me. It's wicked. It's evil. It's sin. Why are, and of, especially of all the Old Testament commandments to obey, to obey the Sabbath specifically is even more outrageous because it's that one commandment that isn't repeated for us in the New Covenant. And by the way, just side note, when I say that the New Testament says we don't have to observe the Sabbath, that doesn't mean you shouldn't rest. That's not what that means. We just don't have to religiously observe the Sabbath as a specific day according to the Old Testament law. Taking a day off, everybody needs to do that. Everybody. Okay. So, the fact that anybody would return to the law is pure foolishness. It is a total disgrace to the gospel itself, which says law is paid for. Law is covered. Law is fulfilled in Christ. So to return to it, you're returning to the curse, which is the opposite of the gospel. So to have any Old Testament law, living, abiding, function or nature in your life or in your family at all is sin. It is heresy. And so we have to be very sure that we are not trying to return to, because I know people who I genuinely believe are saved. Absolutely. I mean, they love Jesus. They love the Lord. They love the gospel. And that's the, the, the funny thing is the very people who adhere to Old Testament law would tell you, well, we believe in Jesus. And we know he died for our sins, and we absolutely need him. But we also need to obey the Sabbath. And we also need to follow the law. Well, if you ask those people, what parts of the law do you follow, they'll give you like a few, like, well, we don't eat pork, and um, we obey the Sabbath. It's like, so you follow two of the 630 laws? Well, you don't sacrifice goats? Like, you know, why, why are you just picking and choosing? So it's just, it, makes, it makes no sense. And I've heard this explanation from people who I believe are genuinely saved and still may try to adhere to maybe one or two of the laws. They say things like, I just think that it honors God because God clearly wanted things that way at one point. So to me, to do that still would honor him. And I couldn't disagree more. I think it is an absolute and utter and ridiculous defilement of the true gospel which says that thing you are running back to has been finished. To Tetelestai is what Jesus said on the cross. That's why I tattooed it on my arm because I don't ever want to forget. It is finished. You don't have to return to the law. It's done. It's fulfilled. It's paid for. It's covered. Stop going back to it. And Paul's clear in Galatians. When you go back to the law, you are running back to a false gospel. And that's the gospel that was being perpetuated in Ephesus that Timothy had to deal with. And I am so grateful to God that we don't have that issue here in this church. And this is why I'm preaching it the way I'm preaching it right now, so that that issue doesn't come up in our church. So if you want to come up to me later and go, hey, is it okay if we go do some Old Testament law things? You don't even have to ask me. You already know where I stand. No. Right? We follow follow the new covenant. We read, study, believe, and adhere to the Old Testament just as well. But we are not bound to the law. Ephesians chapter 3, Christ has already taken care of the instruments of the law and we no longer have to abide by it and we now abide by the rules in the new covenant so that is a large part of the 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 heresy and the false teaching that is entering ephesus these this old testament law judaistic belief system that these people have known their whole life or they're bringing it into the gospel and they're mixing it in they're like well yeah i mean you need jesus of course um, 
And, and you need to believe in him to be safe. And you need to follow him and listen to him. And they're all like, oh, great. We all agree. Fantastic. Oh, but are you circumcised? No, you need to be. Because Moses says you have to be. And it's like, have you read the Gospels? Because Jesus is like, I'm better than Moses. Moses said, but I say. Moses said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Jesus, especially in like the Beatitude, or not just uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he is establishing a new authority. You've heard, whether it's your old tradition, or you've heard, whether it's the Old Testament law, or you heard, whether it's something Moses said, or Moses did, and Jesus says, but I say. Meaning, whatever you've heard doesn't matter anymore because I say something new. And Jesus is saying, I'm the new authority. And Revelation 13 says, Jesus is the word. So this word is our absolute, utter, and total and complete authority of Jesus Christ and of our God. And so, to return to any Jewish belief at all in the first century is complete heresy. And Paul deals with it. Through uh, deals with Hymenaeus and Alexander himself and then leaves Timothy and Ephesus to go deal with the rest. And that's the heresy that's kind of creeping in there is obedience to the Sabbath. Everyone has to get circumcised. We have to be Jews to be saved. And that's not the gospel. Now, there were not many who were pushing this false teaching we know it's not many because Paul says in verse 3 that he uh, tells Timothy to remain at Ephesus that you may charge who? Certain persons. So it's a small group. It's a select group. Certain persons. He doesn't say charge many. Um, the heresy is coming from a select few, but the heresy is running rampant. So the select few clearly have some sort of voice, authority, or teaching role in the church because it's spreading pretty rapidly and it's becoming problematic, but it's only a few. And so, even with a few, well, a few bad apples spoil a whole bunch, right? I mean, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, when he's talking about church discipline. There's a man in their church who was uh, committing sexual immorality, a specific kind, that, was, that needed to be dealt with, and the Corinthian church laughed it off like it wasn't a big deal. And Paul says, you should feel ashamed of yourselves for thinking this is not a big deal. And you need to deal with this man and do the same thing that Paul did to Hymenaeus and Alexander, hand them over to Satan, for the, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, for the destruction of his flesh. So there's that reality of church discipline that comes along with certain persons teaching false things and believing false things and spreading false things because no matter what their position in the church is, whether they're elder or uh, they have no role in the church, it needs to be dealt with and it needs to be dealt with severely to protect the purity of sound doctrine in the church because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Leaven... Is, makes the dough rise. You put a little bit of yeast in dough and the whole, the whole thing rises. One bad apple spoils a whole bunch. You can't let the... Let me just be clear. Paul is not teaching that. Anyone who ever, ever sins ever again needs to be kicked out of church. That's not what he's teaching because many of us sin often, right? And the objective of our Christian life is to be sanctified out of sin and into righteousness so we become more like Christ. But what he's talking about is there are specific sins or a repetition of sins or a lack of repentance from sins or repeated behavior. And we'll address that in 1 Timothy 5 when we get there. But the unrepentant, repeated sin over and over, Paul says you have to deal with this. And when, when that sin is specifically teaching lies... And teaching people a gospel that is contrary to the gospel that we believe, then it has to be dealt with severely. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul's talking to those believers because they fell for this syncretism as well. Syncretism is the blending of two different belief systems, right? Sinking different beliefs together. And, and the Galatian church started believing Judaistic gospel, like you have to get circumcised and believe in Jesus. And Paul starts his letter to the Galatians, I am astonished that you would leave 
The gospel that I taught you for a different gospel. And we see the same words here in chapter, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. When Paul tells Timothy to not let them teach any different doctrine. That different doctrine, different gospel, same idea. And Paul says in Galatians 1, I'm astonished that you have abandoned Christ for a different gospel. And then he gives this little parenthetical statement where he goes, but there isn't actually a different gospel. Not that there, he says, not that there is a different gospel, because there isn't a different gospel. There's only one gospel. So the fact that you would leave for a different gospel means you're following a false gospel that's not the gospel. And if there's people in the church doing that, they have to be dealt with. If that sounds mean or harsh or rude or whatever, it's like, well, that's not fair to those people. Listen, those people's lives are not more valuable than the church as a body of Christ. So you're either on board with the word or you're off board with the word. That's the biblical perspective. Now, the way in which that needs to be done, gracious, loving, you know, gentle, and, and there's a lot of wise ways and very probably many unwise ways to deal with these sins. But there is clarity in the, in the New Testament on how important it is to remove the leaven, to remove the one who is perpetuating false doctrine in the church. Because the purity of the church is essential. You look at Ephesians chapter 5 and what Paul says about, he's talking about husbands and wives. And as he's talking about husbands and wives, he clarifies that the husband's role is to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And then he gets in this little caveat about who Christ is and what he does to the church. That he loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then specifically, in Ephesians 5, he says, that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her, so Christ dealing with the body sanctifies us, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he sanctifies us by cleansing us with the word, which is why we need to be in the word, because the word sanctifies us, it shows us our sin, it destroys our sin, it shows us who we are in Christ, who we should be, how to live righteously, how to obey, what to think, what to say, how to feel, everything we need for life and godliness is in the word, and the word is the only sanctifying thing, and the word is applied to our hearts and minds and applied in our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we got to be in the word to achieve or to participate in this sanctification. And what does the sanctification do? What's the purpose? He says, so that he, Christ, might present the church, that's us being sanctified, to himself in splendor without spot and without wrinkle and without any such thing that we, she, the church, the bride might be holy and without blemish. That is the reason we need to clean up the church. That doesn't mean we're like, you know, running around like, oh, anybody's sinning, who am I going to find? Ah, you sinned, you're out of here. Like, purifying the church. Like, that's not at all the picture that the New Testament paints. But if we've got people teaching false doctrine, they need to be removed or corrected, and they need to receive that correction immediately or they got to go. And if that sounds harsh to that person, well, it's a lot worse if they stay. Because in order for, say, church leadership to love 100 people, letting that one false teacher stay in the church is to hate those 100 people. And what the Bible describes as love is to take that one person and say, you can't be a part of this body if you're going to be that way, and to hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. And Paul calls that loving that person, and it's definitely loving the rest of the body, the rest of the 99 people, because you're protecting their doctrine and you're protecting the gospel for them. And we're, and we're handing that person over to Satan, which ultimately is handing them over to God for the destruction of their flesh so that their flesh would be ripped off by the enemy and they would be saved in the final day. That's love. It sounds harsh. It sounds mean. It sounds and it's difficult. It's not fun to do. I can tell you as a church leader, it's not a fun activity. It's the worst thing to do. I don't enjoy doing that. I try to avoid it at all costs. Be as gracious as possible. But there has to be an accountability to sound doctrine in the word of God. And so a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And so Timothy's job is to clean out the leaven. So that the church would be pure doctrinally. And doctrinal purity will lead to holiness or purity in 
living for Christ. So, who are the false teachers? Well, they're elders. And we know they're elders because Hymenaeus and Alexander are dealt with by Paul, and for Paul to deal with them is a big deal. So, they've got to be high-ranking dudes, which means you've got elders in the church who are teaching false doctrines. And he hands, them, hands Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan, which does indicate to us that Paul seems to think that Hymenaeus and Alexander are actually saved because he says that they need to learn not to blaspheme. Well, if an unbeliever, unbelie- we don't care if an unbeliever learns not to blaspheme the Lord. They need Jesus. They don't need to learn not to blaspheme. They need to learn that they need Christ. That's what an unbeliever needs. So for Paul to say that Hymenaeus and Alexander have been handed over to Satan so they would learn not to blaspheme means Paul thinks that these dudes are saved. Or at least he's holding out hope that they are. And so that teaches us something. Not every person who teaches false doctrine in the church is unsaved or necessarily an unbeliever. You could just have bad doctrine and run around and tell everybody your bad doctrine thinking it's right. Which is what Paul will get to later in this letter is that's why you have elders in the church. Authoritative men that God has called and those men are specifically trained and educated and experienced in knowing the word, understanding doctrine and teaching it so that we're all on the same page doctrinally. So that those very men, those elders can go throughout the church and go, that doctrine's wrong. We don't believe that because that's not what the Bible teaches. We need to correct that doctrine. And that person who's running around telling that false doctrine could go, oh, well, you're my pastor, you're my preacher, you're my elder or whatever, and uh, I'm supposed to submit to your authority and, and submitting to your authority, I also have to submit to your teaching and your interpretation of the Bible. And so I believe what you say. And if you really have a hard time believing that, then you need to have more discussion with your elders and go from there. But... Ultimately, that's why there are elders in the church to preserve that purity, to hold the church and the body and each other as elders accountable to sound doctrine. Because what matters most in the church is the purity of the church, the sanctification of the church, the righteousness of the church, that we become more like Christ. And the best way to destroy that is false doctrine, bad doctrine, poor doctrine. Because poor doctrine will lead to poor living. So there are a few other reasons why we know that these false teachers are elders. One, Paul says in verse 7 that they presume to be teachers. Two, I said this before, Paul personally deals with some of his false teachers. Three, uh, Paul gives a list in chapter 3 of qualifications for elders, which indicates that Timothy has to find new dudes to fill these roles that he's cutting out of the church. So he's obviously has to put... We know there are Ephesian elders because Paul talks directly to the Ephesian elders in Acts. And so what, the fact that Timothy has to find new elders to fill these roles means that they're getting rid of elders, which means that these false teachers are probably elders. And not only that, but... Paul gives Timothy in chapter 5 instructions on how to deal with these types of authorities who are theologically off base. And so, Timothy has a challenging task in front of him. It's hard. Um, It's not an easy one. He's a new pastor in a new church, and he has to deal with some pretty severe sin and some false teaching and false doctrine. And so he's got a a heavy task in front of him. Typically, when you go to, uh, or when a church hires a new pastor, there's what we call the honeymoon period, right? Like six months to a year. Oh, we got a new pastor. And everyone gets to know the pastor, and the pastor gets to know everybody, and everything's just nice and easy. It's pretty nice, pretty cool for maybe a year. And then life gets real, and that pastor's to start dealing with things, and the elders start dealing with whether it's sin or teaching certain things or whatever. And, and people sin, so we've got to deal with sin and lovingly and graciously work together and understanding each other and things get messy. Life gets messy. People are messy, right? So the honeymoon period eventually ends. Well, Timothy had no honeymoon period. <laughs> Him and Paul show up in Ephesus and Paul's like, all right, Timothy, uh, I'm going to take care of Hymenaeus and Alexander. I'm going to go to Macedonia. I want you to stay here in Ephesus and deal with the rest of the people. I'll write you a letter later. He writes in the letter, does, tells him these things. And Timothy has like no honeymoon period. So he just walks in the church with the authority of Paul and the word of God and says, this is who we're going to be. 
I would imagine that with the number of people in that church and the traditions that they carry into church, and now Timothy's like, I have the authority of Paul to tell you that this is what church is going to look like. And you've got all these older men, probably, who have their old traditions and their Judaism, and they're trying to understand God and know Christ, that there's a lot of, you know, like, clashing going on in this church that Timothy's going to have to deal with. And Timothy's young, which is why he... Paul tells Timothy later, don't let them despise you for your youth. Meaning, don't let them see, don't give them a reason to call you immature. Right? Instead, be an example. And so, tough task for Timothy. Young pastor, not that experienced, in a church full of old, experienced, traditional guys with false doctrines. Timothy has the right doctrine. He's commanded by Paul. He's the authority of Paul, but he has to wield it. He's never done that before. He needs to depend on the Spirit to do it, which is a key point. Elders who are not led by the Spirit are not good elders. Like, I make it my objective as an elder, not as a pastor, as an elder, because biblically speaking, an elder is a pastor and a pastor is an elder. There is no separation biblically. There's no word for pastor that isn't elder, and there's no word for elder that isn't pastor. It's the same office in the Bible. Okay? So you could just as easily call Brian Pastor Brian. And you could, you know, so like, it's, it's different though because we have cultural things, right? Because we have pastors who we pay to serve the church and we got elders who are volunteers and they don't get paid. So we call them elders and we call the guy we pay our pastor. But that's not how scripture is structured. That's not how the church is biblically structured. Um, I will say this. Paul does talk in this letter, about the importance of making sure that those who labor in preaching and teaching, which would be an elder, so an elder who labors in the preaching and teaching for the church should be compensated. So that's where we get that separation, that delineation and hierarchy of eldership, that there are those who make it their responsibility to teach the church. That's my role here. And I'm compensated for it, and it becomes a cultural norm, which is not unbiblical. So, you can imagine Timothy coming in, and he's young and new, and he's got bad dudes in the church to deal with. He's got to deal with people who think they're mature, but older men with traditional ideas that they're bringing in the church and they're trying to teach the people. And not only that, but Timothy also has to go, oh, and by the way, you have to pay me. <laughs> like, can you imagine being like, dude. And Timothy's like, that's just, those are Paul's instructions. And where did Paul get his instructions? Directly from Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed himself to Paul in a vision more than once and instructed Paul every, on everything he needed to know. So this is coming directly from the Lord himself. And so Timothy's got to take this with strong conviction, going to the church with, this is my biblical conviction that this is who we're going to be. So it takes a lot of guts to step into Ephesus and to be Timothy. I admire Timothy a lot. He's a lot younger than I am right now. He's got a tough job with tough people doing tough things. And yet he does them. And so Paul teaches Timothy, or commands Timothy, to ensure that these certain persons, who are select few and probably leaders in the church, not to teach any different doctrine. And we now know that that different doctrine is really the doctrine of... Salvation. So there's an interesting... We, we tend to compartmentalize doctrine, right? Like if we call it the doctrine of, and the doctrine of, like the doctrine of salvation, and the, the doctrine of end times, and the doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of angels, and the doctrine of demons. We, all these doctrines, we, we put them in different boxes, we compartmentalize them, we're really good at that, and we kind of need to do that because we have to rip a doctrine from its place so we can kind of examine it. Like, what does the Bible say about angels? What does the Bible say about salvation? What does the Bible say about who God is? What does the Bible say about sin? And we got these compartments for these different doctrines. And that's okay. It's totally fine that we do that because it helps us understand those doctrines biblically. The, the problem that we can come across there is that all doctrine in the Bible is interwoven with, with each other. 
There's no doctrine in Scripture that isn't dependent on other doctrines. I mean, that wouldn't even make sense. Like, what good is the doctrine of salvation if there's no doctrine of election? If there's no doctrine of election, then there's no salvation. So we need to understand the doctrine of election to understand the doctrine of salvation. So, but, so when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, we tend to call that the gospel. And it is the gospel, and again, that's totally fine to call it the gospel. But the gospel really is the entirety of Scripture. The gospel is God. The good news is we get God, and God reveals himself in all of Scripture. So the gospel really, ultimately, big word gospel, is the compilation of all the doctrines in the Bible interwoven together to create what we call truth. That's what doctrine is. That's what the gospel is. There is a specific doctrine within the gospel that we call the doctrine of salvation, which is Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. Believe in him and you will be saved. We tend to call that the gospel. We think that is the only thing that we call the gospel, but that's not how scripture describes it. That is what we would call the doctrine of salvation. So it's really important that we understand, and it'll matter as we go on in this book too, the interwoven nature of doctrine in scripture. And Timothy's objective, my objective, Brian's objective, and any elder's objective should always be to preserve the purity of sound doctrine in the church which means we've got to step on bad doctrine and promote and teach sound doctrine. And ultimately, it's the doctrine of salvation that is being twisted in Ephesus. So Timothy's job is to protect the gospel, meaning all doctrine and all its interwoven nature together so that the church could be pure in every way through all the doctrines by believing sound doctrine all across the board so they would be a church of truth. But specifically what's being uh, perpetuated in Ephesus is a bad doctrine of salvation. So specific doctrine is really being attacked and it's the doctrine of salvation that they would add these Jewish elements to what we call the gospel to make it what's not the gospel and as we've already talked about that, I won't share any more about it, but that's what Timothy is up against. But I want you to understand that interwoven big picture idea of the gospel is all biblical doctrines tied together, all dependent on each other. You can't have one without the other. And that's important as we continue to try to understand the word of God as we continue in this letter because we'll see different elements and different doctrines pop up and we'll start to go, well, this doctrine can't be true if I believe this doctrine's true. And we have to start examining our doctrine to make sure that we're biblical and to make sure that we preserve the purity of the gospel in the church. And the best way for the church to ensure sound doctrine is to know sound doctrine. How do you know sound doctrine? Well, where's sound doctrine come from? Where do we learn sound doctrine? In the Word. So how do we know sound doctrine? By being in the Word. So I'm going to teach you guys something new you've never heard before. We should be in the Word. So, did I just blow your minds? Okay. Yeah. I, I know it's on repeat, and I have no shame in that. I, I, I love it because... Because I think you love it too. I, I really do. I think you love the idea that we're reminded every week to be in the Word. And, and the reality is, when I sit down and I write these sermons, I know I've said this before, when I sit down and I write these sermons, and I get near the end, and I'm like, what is, I mean, as I've studied the text, what is Paul's real point here? Like, what is the meaning of this text? I have to explain that throughout the sermon. But, like, what does that mean to us today? Like, what is the application of that in my life? I can tell you all the doctors, teach you all the doctors of the world. I when I was in school and they're teaching us doctrines, like, man, so much information. And then there's this, there's no like application to it until you get to this one class with like, hey, let's learn how to apply the Bible to our lives. I'm like, well, could have used that for four years before. But like, it's really hard to just, how does this really make sense to my life? And as I take the doctrines that Paul teaches and I try to write out a sermon and I examine like, I get near the end, I'm going, okay, what, what does this mean for, for Grace Church? What does it mean for the individual people in this building and how they live their lives? What's the impact? I mean, I could come up with a million different applications. 
And by the way, I don't think it's the preacher's job to apply the Bible to your life. Not my job. Application is not my job. I know that we've been taught for years in the church, you know, three-point sermon, uh, make your point, and then apply it to their lives. Tell a story, make a point, apply it to their lives. Tell a story, make a point, apply it to their lives. Like the three-point sermon structure. And the idea there is that it's my job to say, well, this means this in your life. You can treat your wife like this or do your job like that or, and make some application. That's not my job. Whose job is that? It's not your job. Whose job is it? It's the Holy Spirit's job to apply the truth of the word to your heart, which means it's your responsibility to examine yourself and say, all right, Holy Spirit, Pastor Mark just taught me this or that truth. What does that mean to me? Now, I do think it's a responsibility of the preacher to make some implications, not applications, but implications of the text. If this is true, what does that mean to the way that the church literally functions as a body? What should we actually do? And every time I sit down and think about that, I'm like, well, we should treat each other like this. Well, how do we know how to treat each other like this? We only know to treat each other like this because Jesus says it. Well, how do I know Jesus says it? Because it's in the Word. So what does that ultimately mean? It means they need to know the Word. And every time... I sit down and think about the implications. It always funnels down to if you're in the word, I don't have to give you an application because you're in the word. The applications come from the spirit. The doctrine and the understanding of the word come from the spirit. As you study and read and know the word, the Holy Spirit fills you as you commune with God. That's how Christ got filled with the Spirit, communing with God, communing with His Father. You commune with God in the Word and prayer, and the Spirit fills you, and the Spirit teaches you, and the Spirit applies the text to your life. I... It's not my job to do that for you. Because I think I've been clear today what my, one of my priorities, or one of my job, one of the priorities of my job really is. I call it a job. It's not a job, it's a calling. One of the priorities of my calling really is, which is to protect the church from false doctrine and to promote the purity of sound doctrine. That's my responsibility. But I need your help. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I'm not Paul. And I'm probably not even close to Timothy. So, like, I need your help. So, if you know sound doctrine because you're in the Word, then I don't have to tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> right? Like, you won't be wrong. You will be right. You'll know the Word. And then if you're in the Word all the time and we have different doctrine and we don't agree, because you're in the Word and you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to come to me in peace. And you're going to go, hey, Pastor Mark, I, I was studying this. I heard you say this on Sunday. And I've always believed this. Like, what? Can we talk this through? And then we can work it out. Which is way better than what Timothy's facing. Like, someone going, you're wrong, die! You know, like, a total opposition to his authority. And then he's got to, like, face not only false doctrine, but people who are fighting against him. And so, you being in the word is massive to the purity of this church. Because the purity of the church is not as it's like a, it's not a an all-encompassing reality. It is an individual reality. Like the purity of the church is the purity of individuals who are pure. Amen. Which means you specifically need to be sanctified, and that comes from you being in the Word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Um, we cannot protect the purity of your church without the true gospel. So any way in which our doctrine is off, show us. If we're wrong, teach us. We trust you. Help us to depend on your word, to see it in your word, to know your word, to study your word, to believe your word, to live your word. And help us to become not only pure in doctrine, but then pure in practice pure in holiness and in righteousness, obeying you, following you depending on you, trusting you, leading our families according to your word, leading your church according to your word, making an impact in the community according to your word, spreading the gospel according to your word, which when it really comes, what it really comes down to, Lord, is that we just need you. And like the word need couldn't be emphasized enough. We are desperate for you. We need you so much that without you we die. And not just a physical death, 
spiritually and eternally without you, we die. So we need you not only for our salvation, we need you every day, every moment, for every breath is total and absolute dependence on you. Sanctify this church by keeping it sound in doctrine and pure in the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.